0: The fact is, is that the majority of folks who are over-consuming fast fashion are people with disposable incomes and they are are spending 500 to 1,000 pounds a month. That's a lot of money. I spend nowhere near that amount on clothes.
1: You're listening to Doing It Right with me, Pandora Sykes, a podcast where I talk to experts about the myths, anxieties, and trends of modern life. There's no such thing as the right life, but what might we be getting wrong? In this series, series three, I'll be exploring sleep, the science of emotions, and fast fashion. And I'll be asking my guests questions like, is baby brain a real thing? Is everything we've been told about skincare wrong? And why aren't we talking more about dementia? This is a podcast that asks, what can we do to live life better? Not just for ourselves, but for everyone. Have you ever wondered what greenwashing is? You know that fast fashion is bad for the planet, but you're hazy on the details. Like where do the clothes go that the charity shop doesn't want? If so, this episode is for you. I've been wanting to do an episode on the many myths of fast fashion since I wrote an essay titled Get the Look for my 2020 essay collection, How Do We Know We're Doing It Right, which this podcast series first spun off from. And Venetia LaManna, a presenter and podcaster campaigning against fast fashion and advocating for more mindful consumption, is the ideal guest to explore this issue with. She regularly organises protests against fast fashion brands, lobbying for fashion brands to pay fair wages to their workers. And her Instagram account is a vital trove of statistics about what really lies behind that sustainable clothing tag. Venetia and I discuss overproduction. She says that brands need to produce 95% less clothing than they are currently. Why luxury is as bad as the high street at underpaying their workers, 80% of whom earn under a living wage the stigma of second-hand, and how we can make it more inclusive, and why this isn't an individual issue, but a corporate one. We also discussed the role of social media and influencer culture in maintaining fast fashion stronghold. After we recorded this episode, it was announced that Kourtney Kardashian had collaborated with Boohoo, whose worker conditions have been compared to modern slavery on a sustainable collection. Venetia also shares some useful tips for finding joy in slower consumption. And I've listed loads of resources in the show notes. Benita, thank you so much for coming on to Doing It Right. I'm so excited to be here. I'm a fan of the show, so it's a real honour. Well, I have so many things I want to dig into with you, so gird your loins. (laughs)
0: Okay, (laughs) I will do.
1: What are the biggest myths when it comes to fast fashion?
0: Oh, great question. And a big question. I would say one of the biggest myths about fast fashion is how it's affordable. Obviously, in some respects, it is because it's uh, produced in such a way that it has a fairly low price point, especially from ultra fast fashion brands like Shein, but I would argue, and I think the slow fashion movement would argue that the cost is actually extremely high because it's costing people. 80% of garment makers are women. They're women of color who aren't earning fair living wages. And it's also costing our planet. We currently don't have the resources to be producing clothing at the rate at which we are, there are 7 billion people in the world. We're producing 150 billion items of clothing every single year, 60% of which, or over 60% of which are made from polyester and other fossil fuel derived materials.
1: Essentially, I suppose the biggest myths are the idea that people can't afford to make better choices, but what you're saying is if we don't afford to make better choices, then that choice will be taken away because there'll just
0: be nothing left. Absolutely. And I think perhaps another myth is how the onus is on us as individuals. I Mm. think part of the onus is, but I think the majority of the onus really needs to be on um, our policymakers. We need legislation in place to Mm -hmm. ensure that there are kind of caps on how much we're producing. And of course, that there are fair living wages for the people making our clothes. And also fines and sanctions that
1: will actually make it unattractive for these big corporations to act in certain ways.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And there has been some It'll actually hit them where it hurts. Exactly. And I think there is some exciting stuff happening at the moment. Um, there have been a couple of watchdogs recently that have found um, brands who are greenwashing and called them out for it. And I do think there's lots of exciting stuff happening in that space, but it should, should have happened yesterday.
1: The Guardian described fast fashion last year as low price, low maintenance, low risk. All part of our move towards a friction-free life. The clothing is so cheap that we buy masses of it and throw it away or give it to charity shops who don't even want it and send it to Ghana, where it's not even good enough quality to make into new clothes and instead sits in landfill there. We thought Rana Plaza would change everything, but that was 10 years ago and it's only gotten cheaper and quicker and more bountiful. I mean, Shein has popped up in that time. As an industry, it is booming. How do we get to this point?
0: I think we got to this point because of the system upon which fashion is built. So it's built on a colonialist system. It's built on extraction of people. It's built in a way that if a factory, for example, says to a brand, we're not going to work with you you For the prices that you want us to work the brand will just go to a factory where it's cheaper so it's built on exploitation and then you add in this sort of heady cocktail of social media of reality tv of influencers of celebrities and we're in this place where it feels as though it's getting faster and faster and that's because it is. It's not all doom and gloom. I think there's a really, really exciting slow fashion and truly sustainable fashion movement happening kind of in conjunction as, as what we're seeing with ultra fast fashion. But yeah, it's this kind of real mix of, of social media and, and exploitation and it, it feels pretty overwhelming. There
1: has been a lot of exciting stuff actually happening this summer, hasn't there? Um, love island dumped i saw it here first in favor of ebay uh brands like h&m have been fined for greenwashing and then marking a first Shein announced a 50 million dollar grant to a sustainability charity more on that later let's start with love island you alluded mm. to just now which has just finished did you watch it
0: every episode did you <laughs> <laughs> I did not. I I think I I didn't miss a single one. I absolutely loved it. And thanks to your brilliant podcast, Unreal, I'm not going to feel any shame about it. I'm just going (laughs) to embrace the fact that I enjoyed it and I'm I'm not going to feel ashamed of it.
1: The show had obviously become a fast fashion incubator churning out these fast fashion influencers like Molly May, who is now, of course, the creative director of Pretty Little Thing on a 4.8 million pound salary. And previous Love Island sponsors included Misguided, and I saw it here first. But then this year it surprised, if not all of us, most of us, I think, by partnering with my beloved eBay, where contestants were wearing some of these amazing pre-loved clothes. As someone that actually watched it, how much of an impact do you think this had given how young their viewers skew. I mean, it's the exact demographic that typically shop super fast e-tail.
0: I think it was a really, really exciting move. It felt like, wow, this uh, movement is finally getting the recognition it deserves. This feels really kind of. Um, this feels like real progress so i think i can speak on um behalf of of the slow fashion community when i say we were all pretty excited and pretty delighted as a viewer i absolutely loved what amy the stylist did um some of the outfits they kind of stuck with that love island look like there was mm. a lot of bodycon but there were some really really cool much more kind of one-off vintage looking pieces which was just so exciting to see um so as a viewer and as a second hand and vintage and ebay lover i absolutely love that side of it in terms of what the kind of target demographic is for, for the show i don't know if i'm actually the target demographic anymore You're too old. I think I am a little bit too old, yeah. Yeah, we are too old. (laughs) (laughs) I think, uh, you know, searches for eBay were definitely up. But because of the way that brands like Pretty Little Thing uh, use social media... Their stocks also went up. There was a really interesting article by the Business of Fashion that showed um, that, that that searches for this kind of Love Island style of clothing uh, was also, yeah, still up in the ranks for the, for the ultra fast fashion brands. And I also feel like eBay could be doing more and could have done more. I was really hoping that we we'll get there. Were going to be clauses in the contestants' contracts which prevented them from working with fast fashion brands for even just a couple of months either side of the show. But unfortunately, Pretty Little Thing was sponsoring a festival over the weekend called We Are Festival, where the majority of the contestants were down, um, kind of partying with Molly May and the rest of the and the rest of the PLT gang, uh, which was kind of disappointing to see. And you know. We're kind of waiting to see which of the contestants take on the big fast fashion partnerships, but you know, pretty little thing, we're we're tweeting constantly. Which Islander should we give our contract to? Retweet who, who you want to see get the PLT crown. So. Um, I I feel a little bit disappointed because I do feel and I want eBay to be doing more um, to really kind of continue this, this positive shift. Mm.
1: Baby steps, maybe. I imagine trying to get clauses into those contracts that you mentioned would have been nigh impossible.
0: Yeah, I think you're probably right because they're just up against it money wise, right? Like the ultra fast fashion brands are the ones with all the money. Well, that's why
1: people go on Love Island, isn't it?
0: Like I mean, there's very, very few people that go on it now who
1: don't want that kind of partnership and lifestyle and career. Do you think there's still a stigma when it comes to second-hand? I was interested that eBay and Love Island referred to the clothes as pre-loved, which is something that lots of people do. Um, I think Vestiaire do it, don't they? But for example, I've always said second-hand. Is language important, do you think, in terms of getting more people on board?
0: Yeah, I absolutely do think language is important because I I, I feel that lots of folks just aren't really there yet. I I, I received a comment on TikTok last week, which was just from someone saying, I just can't get behind this. I just think, you know, secondhand clothing is dirty um, and I don't want to wear it myself. Now, there are some cultural reasons why people might take this stance, Mm -hmm. but I think it's really important to remember if you are someone who feels a bit grossed out by secondhand clothes, that brand new clothes in... Uh, fast fashion high street stores have already gone through so many pairs of hands before you wear them and if you buy something secondhand you can wash it um, and you should wash it if it if it if if it smells not so great and if it feels not so great and in terms of language I personally don't go for the pre-loved phrase too much myself I just feel it doesn't quite sit right with me secondhand feels absolutely fine there's something about pre-loved that I'm just not quite behind. I don't know what it is. Is it because it feels a bit- Well, it's a bit more abstract. I don't think it's totally clear what, uh, the whole
1: point is that if you're trying to destigmatize secondhand, then I I, I can see the word as being quite useful. Pre-loved is a little bit more fanciful. It's not exactly clear what it is, but look, I mean, I'll use any word that makes, as you say, people feel more comfortable. You mentioned cultural issues there. I remember reading a really interesting thread on Twitter a couple of years ago where these people were talking about the class performance of vintage shopping, how it takes so much time, and time is money. It's incredibly size elitist a lot of the time it's really hard to find good vintage clothes over a size 14 and the average british woman is a size 16 and for a lot of people who grew up with not very much money and had to wear you know cast offs from family friends there were people tweeting saying look now i'm an adult and i can afford new clothes i am never going to buy secondhand clothes i'm just not going to do that it's such a backslide for a lot of people how do we make it a more inclusive place for people
0: I think this is super important I do agree that being able to find vintage and secondhand gems is definitely a privilege you know I am someone who is I'm a size like eight to ten so it is much easier for me to find pieces and I also have the luxury of time so this is very much a privilege for me to be able to shop in a way that is totally aligned with my ethics I do think secondhand apps can be a really great place for folks to start because they have, you know, let's utilize tech, right? And there are filters on these apps, mm. which mean you can find pieces that not only fit your uh, fit your size, but also fit your budget. So I do think apps are amazing um, and a great place to start, especially if you don't have secondhand shops near you. Are there any ones you'd recommend? Oh yes, uh, I love Vestiaire Collective. I find that the pieces I buy from Vestiaire, just because they are more luxury, are more likely to kind of stand the test of time in my wardrobe, just because I kind of, I think I value them a bit more. I also really love Depop. I have, uh, I, I know people are obsessed with Vinted. I feel like if you use Vinted, you are a diehard Vinted fan. And um, there's also places like Up, Poshmark. I really love New, which is actually a close swap app so it's not um as traditional Ooh, but yeah it's really really great would really recommend you new is spelt n-u-w so there are loads out there but i also really appreciate that what you what you said in the question that for some people you know they feel like it's not for them and and why should they have to and to me this is really where the kind of system change has to come in i want us to be able to go into a shop or to any website online and buy something that has been made by someone who has been paid a fair living wage. And I would like that brand to not be overproducing clothes and that legislation should be in place. So we need kind of everything to happen. Mm. And I think, you know, also we because capitalism is just so entrenched in every fiber of our being we think that the only way we can be engaged in a slow fashion slower fashion movement is by buying and actually it's so much more than that like buying is kind of at the bottom of the list it's about educating yourself getting to know your wardrobe, buying less, learning how to mend things and fix things, or if you don't want to do that, finding a local seamster. Um, It's about kind of finding a sense of community, perhaps hosting a swap shop with your colleagues or your university mates. It's really... Also about learning about the people behind our clothes. And if you can financially supporting to that cause, or if you can't just being in solidarity by them with them by calling out a fast fashion brand who's refusing to pay them what they're owed on social media. There are so many other ways to be involved that don't involve buying. So if you're someone who feels like, you know what, I can't give up the fast fashion brands that I love and that you know give me the dopamine that I really feel like I need. I would argue that, that there are other ways to find dopamine, but also if that's fine. Here are lots of other ways you can be involved to show solidarity to the people in the industry without whom we would not have a fashion industry. Very well put. And you're
1: right. It is all about that dopamine hit because I, when I'm trying not to shop and I go through periods of not using social media very much, just when, you know, I'm struggling with sleep or anxiety or whatever, I really kind of pace the house being like, where can I get my hit? Because <laughs> I can't shop. I'm not on social media, you know, there's, it's, I'm just so used, we are all so used to that like, ding, ding, ding. It's really, and inevitably what I end up doing is, uh, you know, I eat a bar of chocolate, because I can't think of another way to get that like, little lift that we
0: have become so used to. That's so interesting. I also think, you know, it's, we're, we're up against it, because if we exist, you know, as lots of us do, if we spend lots of time on social media, these apps have made it too easy for us to buy in a matter of clicks. You know, Instagram is now basically a shopping platform. TikTok's heading that way. So it's not exactly easy. Um, really, really interesting though that you've brought up, you know, looking for that kind of dopamine hit. I, you know, I I think with me, when I'm in a really low place, I often find myself scouring the websites that I used to, like ASOS or Net-a-Porter, and I just add stuff to my bag but then I just don't buy it
1: (laughs) yes I do like I do like fantasy shopping that is a good that is a good tip speaking of shopping and how it's changed something I think a lot about is how a young person's experience of shopping has changed so much. When I was a teenager, the high street that we had then has basically been eviscerated in the last 20 years. And I actually really recommend Lauren Bravo's episode on sentimental garbage about kind of how the high streets changed, but I loved it. It's so good. And it just really took so me good. back to shopping on a Saturday morning, browsing the body shop for hours, buying a glittery butterfly clip from Claire's and a belt from You Look and finishing up in water. which is where I always met my mum smelling like all the delicious new hardbacks that she would never buy because you know who bought hardbacks so actually real joy of adulthood is buying hardbacks but anyway the experience of shopping then was just I just think it was so joyful compared to what I see it now as which feels just quite high pressure and almost like a necessary labor like does is there still the joy you think that there was when it was like that
0: I honestly truly feel a Great deep sense of joy having slowed my habits. Truly, I'm not just saying this because you know it's good for the planet, it's good for people, and it's good for my it's good for my pocket. I genuinely feel so much better in myself having moved away from. You know, I used to on my lunch break at work go into Urban Outfitters and on my way home go into Zara. I wouldn't necessarily buy anything, but it was just a kind of I used those shops as a way to kind of distract myself, and it didn't feel good. And now I don't really go shopping all that much, but when I do, I kind of set aside a day and I do I go just by myself and I make a kind of plan of all the secondhand shops I want to go to and I really kind of take my time with it. And similarly, if I'm looking to buy something online, I am not I don't rush purchase anymore. I have a cutoff point. I do not buy anything after 9 pm if it's online. And because I take my time over. It, all of the things that I do buy. I really find I treasure them more and then I I, I really appreciate them more and I feel better upstairs in my head um, now that I've slowed my fast fashion um, habit.
1: This episode of Doing It Right is sponsored by Oto and their cult Sleep Drops. I first tried Sleep Drops last year when they were recommended to me by a friend and I've never looked back. I've had sleep issues for the last five years or so and I would regularly experience all-night bouts of insomnia. I made some lifestyle changes, no mobile phones in bed people, which helped immeasurably, but I still felt anxiety about going to sleep until I met Sleep Drops. Oto believe that products should be evidence-based and their award-winning Sleep Drops are bestsellers for a reason. Created to help you wind down, relax and better prepare for a peaceful night's sleep, they're blended with 50 milligrams of pure CBD, which is the research-recommended amount proven to have an impact on your sleep. One of the most common misconceptions about CBD is that it makes you drowsy when actually it optimises your natural sleep-wake cycle it's not a sedative it's a healthy sustainable and natural alternative to a sleeping pill helping you to feel focused and productive during your day if you like the sound of them visit otocbd.com forward slash pandora that's o-t-o-c-b-d.com forward slash pandora to shop with 20% off using the code pandora20 the link is also in the show notes You have described yourself as a recovering fast fashion, fast fashion addict and you mentioned there kind of cruising by Urban Outfitters and then Zara. What was your crunch point when you slid from what you were then to what you are now?
0: I was actually called out uh, on the internet. I'm a I'm a people pleaser and so when someone tells me I should be doing something better, I will listen. Um, and I was on, I, I put a YouTube video up and I was talking about plant-based eating and someone said hey great that you're vegan but you're wearing asos have you looked into the impacts of fast fashion i really think this is something you should be concerned about and i thought oh no i haven't and so i went away um i watched the true cost documentary and started reading kind of around the subject and i could not believe what i had learned obviously there were lots of people talking about this when i was learning about it about five years ago but it hadn't really mm-hmm. entered my ether um so I just couldn't believe it. And I, and I felt like a lot of my peers and my friends weren't really thinking about it either. So I just started talking about it online and it also kind of coincided with a time where I felt like I couldn't keep up with the constant newness that I was seeing on social media. Um, I was also TV presenting at the time and I felt like I couldn't go on the show that I was presenting. It was lots of different things. And I, so I started a hashtag uh, on Instagram called triple OTD, which stood for old outfit of the day. It was just a really simple way for me to kind of... Put a bit of a middle finger up to the outfit of the day hashtag and just try and share a bit about what I was learning and really celebrate the pieces I, I already had. And I think it resonated with people um, because I think a lot of us feel like we can't keep up with trends and nor should we have to. Um, so that was kind of how it all started. And then things went from there. And I started, you know, diving diving deeper every week, it feels like. And still still very much learning, still very much on the path.
1: I mean, I do so much of my learning through you. So there must be tons of discovery going on your end. What we hear a lot is in defense of, um, you call it ultra fast fashion. I can't remember. I think I called it faster than fast fashion. I think ultra fast is better. In your book. Yeah, Yeah, I think it did, but ultra fast is, is better. But yeah, so what you hear in defense quite a lot is, Young people can't afford to make better choices. But what I feel like has forgotten quite a lot is that no one used to own anywhere like this many clothes. And I always remember speaking to Stefan Siegel. I think it was about seven years ago, he founded the platform, not just a label, which is all um, kind of made to order independent brands from all over the world. Don't know actually if it still exists, but he was talking about how the average person used to own three pairs of shoes and they would cobble those shoes when they needed it. And somehow our value system has become skewed into thinking that we need lots of shoes and they need to be really cheap. And also that clothes are really, really important. You know, that shopping constantly is just a hobby that we all do. And this sort of ambient shopping, shopping on our lunch hour, shopping in front of the telly, shopping on the way to work, is somehow necessary and normalized. And the average customer at Misguided and Boohoo, she shops a lot. She's not necessarily someone with very, very limited financial resources buying one thing every six months. She's choosing an aesthetic and a lifestyle and by extension, a
0: value system. The fact is, is that the majority of folks who are over consuming fast fashion are people with disposable incomes and they, yeah. are, they are spending, you know, 500 to 1,000 pounds a month. That's a lot of money. I spend nowhere near that amount on clothes. So that's really what we're kind of trying to get at. We used to shop in a way that was much more circular, much less linear. You know, my mum still has my t-shirts that I wore and were handed down to me by my sisters in the 90s. She uses them as as rags. You know, we grew up in this way. We can absolutely go back to it, but it's, that's one of the things that we need to do collectively. And then alongside that, we also need the big stuff to happen, the legislation that I've mentioned earlier in this conversation.
1: I've always divided e-stores and bricks and mortar into kind of separate packages. I sort of in my head had uh, Sheehan, PLT, misguided in one Place and then the kind of older High Street variant of Mango Zara Uniqlo. And then I had a tier up price wise of Arquette, Coz and other stories. And then of course, you've got the stalwarts, M&S and John Lewis. Is this a false pyramid I'm constructing in my mind? Is bricks and mortar as bad as Etel? Is my beloved John Lewis as bad as... It can't be as bad as Sheehan. <laughs>
0: it's interesting how we construct this in our minds right and I think this is I think this is something that we all do and I find it absolutely fascinating how we see and other stories and free people as completely separate to H&M it's just marketing so one of the things that I find really really helpful whenever I'm kind of trying to explain to someone um why a brand is is not ethical is looking at their parent company and looking at you know, their billionaire CEO, Mm. and then contrasting that to how much the people making their clothes are earning. Um, This is all marketing. The issues are industry-wide. Luxury are not exempt. Um, In Fashion Revolution's most recent Transparency Index, which came out this summer, they found that 96% of brands aren't paying fair living wages and the brands that scored zero on their transparency index included Tom Ford and Jill Sander so we know that this is an industry-wide issue yeah it's luxury is is very much not exempt and we know that the big brands you know will send their their fine leather goods, um, all their clothing, you know, it, to the bin. They'll slash them and put, in the, and put them in the bin if they don't sell. Um, so it's also- Burn them like Burberry. Yeah, there was the outing of Burberry a couple of years ago. Um, Coach were outed for for slashing and trashing their bags earlier this year. Kate Spade or another really unethical brand to have had some abhorrent garment maker treatment allegations. Um, it really is an industry-wide issue. The, the, the 1% of brands who are doing things in a wonderful way are always the small businesses. Um, Marks and Spencer is something that I can speak to, but John Lewis less so. I know they're not affiliated, but I feel like you put them in a similar bracket when you were describing how you see them in your pyramid. I did. I did. Yes. Tell me about M&S <laughs> Well, the thing is about MS is that when I speak to my friends at the All Foundation, who are an incredible organization based in Cantamanto Market in Accra in Ghana, which is where the majority of the global north's clothing waste ends up, um, please look them up on Instagram and yeah. follow their work at The All is present they always say to me Venetia we have so much Marks and Spencer in Cantamanto market it is absolutely everywhere and I I know we talk a lot about Shein but they say we actually haven't got all that much Shein here there is so much M&S so I really try and think about fashion and fashion brands in terms of how much they are producing because we just simply put so many clothes uh we throw them away. Obviously we know there's no such thing as a way these clothes always go somewhere. They don't ma- magically disappear. But MS <laughs> have produced a lot of clothes and I know we have this kind of, I feel like we have, especially in that podcast that you mentioned earlier with Lauren Bravo on um, sentimental garbage. I know we have like a soft place in our hearts for them, but they are really, really overproducing, um, which is obviously really, really awful and they need to be a held accountable for that.
1: It's the only place my mum shops and has done for as long as I can remember. So it, like, it, yeah, it's a very yeah. nostalgic thing for me because I will always tie it in with her. Let's talk about and You mentioned them right now and they are, I think the most terrifying internet megalord of right now. It took over Amazon as the most downloaded app in the States last year. It churns out 10,000 items a week, rips off every major and minor designer you can think of, and is worth a hundred billion more than Zara and H&M. Combined, last year it was found by Reuters to be falling foul of the UK's Modern Slavery Act, which isn't actually enforced by any financial sanctions currently. And recently it was also announced that Sheehan had pledged $50 million over the next five years to the Orr Foundation, who you mentioned earlier. And this has been quite controversial. Sheehan have been accused of greenwashing. Livia Firth, who founded EcoAge, wrote, apparently money can buy anything. Partnering with Sheehan is actually like a stab in the back of the sustainable fashion advocacy and takes us back years.
0: What do you feel about this? I just really don't think it is our responsibility as privileged people in the global north to be criticizing how an incredible grassroots organization in the global south is taking money it's just it's not up to us and i have you know been friends and worked with with the or foundation for a long time i do not trust anyone more than i trust them to make decisions about how they should be literally bringing women out of poverty you know I know we've had some really horrendous heat waves this summer and climate change is feeling very, very real for us, but it has felt especially real for people uh, in Ghana for a really long time. And a lot of women working in Cantamanto market are there because they can no longer work um, on farms like they used to in northern Ghana because of the climate crisis and because of things like droughts. And they are currently carrying clothes that weigh more than their body weight on their head. And the All Foundation have been pushing for money from fast fashion brands, brands who are responsible for this clothing waste in Cantamanto for so long. And and Sheehan have come through with it and they are not in a position to be able to turn around to these same women who... Have the opportunity for a better life, and say, you know what? We decided to turn that money down because we were worried about what some people uh, in the slow fashion movement in the in the global north were going to think about it. We were worried about some Instagram backlash. Absolutely not. How could they do that? What I, I, and they and they've been very specific about their terms. I don't think this is a greenwashing activity for Shein because the All Foundation have been very specific about how Shein can communicate this. Is it going to change the system? No. Is it a plaster? Yes, but it might be the thing that encourages more fast fashion brands to take accountability for what they're doing, to donate to good causes and to ultimately reduce their overall output by 90 to 95%, which is what we really, really need. I just don't think it's really up to us to be too critical of it. And if I know anything about the Orr Foundation is that they are doing some of the best work in this space and I fully support them and love them dearly and yeah, I'm just here to support them. That's all really interesting. Thank you. Do, is there any
1: element of it legitimizing Sheehan's business practices?
0: I don't think so. No, I, w- I don't think so. And the reason why, I, I mean, I, I talked about it a little bit when it happened on social media, but I didn't really, just because I didn't wanna give it all that much attention. You know, it it's, They shouldn't be congratulated for it. No, it's that, you know, honestly, it's the bare minimum. And, And we're not, no one is taking them, is letting them off the hook. No one's letting them off the hook for the fact that their garment makers are being forced to work 75 hour weeks. No one's forgetting that. Two things, multiple things can be true at the same time. Part of your
1: work is organizing protests, which must be a serious amount of work. You recently co-organized a protest outside the Pretty Little Thing fashion show in London to demand that the Boohoo group pay fair living wages and commit to a drastic reduction in output, which you mentioned earlier needs to be like 90 to 95% to make the difference. Boohoo responded basically saying, you know, it's rubbish. We would never underpay anyone. We're all totally compliant. We've got a whistleblowing hotline, et cetera, et cetera. Is that all BS?
0: What are your thoughts on that? It's absolutely BS. You cannot produce clothing that costs less than a sandwich and for it not to be produced under exploitative conditions. And there have been multiple allegations this summer of how this is actually untrue, and they've been finding loopholes as a way to say that they're paying a living wage when they're not. Um, they've been, there's been so many outings. Um, there've been like false surveys. They found um, they've been using a specific type of machine where they have to their workers have to tap in for a certain amount of hours, but then they've been covering these hours up. There was also something else which said that they which showed how they've been paying their workers a certain amount of money, but then those same workers have had to pay this money back to the factories. Um, It's absolutely BS. We cannot trust these corporations. I can't stress this enough. If you're someone who has ever sewed a button onto a shirt, you know how long it takes. If you're someone who's ever made their own clothes, you know how long this takes. Clothing cannot cost as little as Boohoo is advertising on its website. We know that these things are so much more costly than that process. It makes me really, really angry. How do they get away with lying so much? Because I'm trying to think in different industries.
1: Is it because there's still, I mean, I do know that Dominic Raab was trying to suggest kind of sanctions last year. I don't really know if, with all the political activity, if anything's actually happened there. Are there still no fines or sanctions when a corporation lies about what they're falling foul of in terms of uh, kind of fair wages and slavery, essentially?
0: As far as I know, there's nothing at the moment, but I do think lots of people are working to change this um, but at the moment, yeah, they're just getting away with it. I mean, every fast fashion brand is getting away with it. It's really distressing. You, you know, similarly, misguided went into administration earlier this year and they owe their garment makers and suppliers 20 million. And I think they are only expected to pay, to pay less than 2% of the millions that are owed. So th- there's just currently there's not anything that needs to be in place to ensure that this doesn't happen, but I do think this is changing and lots of people are working to change this. It reminds me a bit of, I know different scenario, but it reminds me a bit of
1: Philip Green with BHS when he wouldn't pay, but that was just the pensions. That wasn't, you know, uh, these workers aren't being paid like their salary, are they
0: from the past? With the protest and the demos that we organized against Misguided, we did that in cohorts with the with their suppliers and also with their garment makers who I met. So they came down from Leicester for the day um, to London where we protested outside Misguided's investors and also their administrators. Um, you know, demanding that these these same workers were were paid the money that they were owed. So this money that is owed is for work that has already been completed. And I think that's a really interesting
1: note that they came down from Leicester because I think that there is this tendency for us to just think that this is something that happens um, in Bangladesh, that it's just in Rana Plaza, whereas actually, obviously, a report shown that those workers in Leicester were being paid three fifty an hour, which is less than half the living wage, isn't it?
0: You've raised a really, really valid point. This is literally happening, yeah, right here in the UK in Leicester. Um, multiple allegations of uh brands paying unfair unfair wages and also, yeah, now not being paid the money that they are owed. So it's it's just happening right here, um, under our noses. Something we're learning more and more about and something you really seek to educate your
1: audience about is greenwashing. H&M, ASOS and Georgia Asda are all I think being fined for greenwashing. Can you explain for listener that's not really sure what it is, can you explain a little bit about greenwashing, how these brands have done it
0: and whether or not you think the fines will help? So greenwashing is when a brand uses marketing as a way to tell you that they're doing something good and ethical and environmentally friendly when in fact that they are not. And. Pandora, can I tell you how sweet it tastes to see a brand like H&M be fined and outed for something like this? I cannot tell you how sweet it tastes. They have been champion greenwashers for so many years now. And to see them finally having their comeuppance, I, I can't tell you how, how, how sweet it tastes. I just wish it wouldn't continue to happen. The reason why they're able to do this is because again, there's not really currently anything in place that means that they can get away with something saying, something is sustainable because it contains five percent organic cotton we need to understand that a brand like H&M there's nothing conscious about them they're not paying the people who make their clothes a fair living wage Um, and they're they're overproducing they plan to double their output by 2030 please explain to me what is conscious about not paying the people who make your clothes and overproducing and planning to increase your overproduction by 2030 there's nothing conscious there
1: And this was, this, the finds are specifically about conscious collections that H&M, ASOS and George have, isn't it? So they, H&M specifically have a very well-known one, which is the conscious collection and they have on their labels, you know, how much water was used to make a garment. And they were repeatedly stating that a garment was made with 30% less water when this independent report found it was made with 30% more water. So they've just done this like neat inversion presumably the whole idea they're saying is, oh, we have this tiny part of our business. You know, this is our baby step. We have this tiny part of our business that is doing something conscious. Is there any part of the way that conscious collection across these brands, but we're talking about h H&M, is there any part of that conscious collection that is more conscious? Is there anything that's done differently?
0: Yeah, if it's made from slightly less harmful materials, so a bit less plastic, a bit less polyester, right. more organ- organic cotton, like that is better but the people working in Cantamanto market would say we can't really tell the difference if a a piece of clothing from a fast fashion brand or a fashion brand arrives in our market and arrives as trash we don't really care what percentage of organic cotton it has in it or not um it, it to me it's all a bit of it's a bit of a much of a muchness and it's i think it's very unethical and greenwashy of the brand However, if it makes us as citizens, I don't want to say consumers because we're more than consumers, but if it makes us go, oh, wait, this sounds interesting. (laughs) Organic cotton sounds great. Oh, what does this all mean? If that can be our first entry point into thinking about slow and sustainable fashion, then that's a good thing. So do you see more as this might be asking for a kind of false
1: comparison, but do you see the problem more overproduction than... The clothes being made of plastic or are they equi problematic
0: the two main issues for me are underpaying the people making their clothes and then overproducing those are the two things however but okay but 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 what's in our clothes is super important and and quite worrying i think recently wasn't there a study that found plastic or microplastics in a placenta in the human body you know the issue of microplastics and plastics and um microplastics from clothing is really it's a it's a big one um so i'm i don't want to undermine it in any way but i think the kind of the two most urgent um factors are garment maker wages and also overproduction so it, it is important but i think it could be solved faster if we addressed those two really important Factors. My last question for you. Do you think that sales like
1: Black Friday should be banned? I mean, there are quite a few labels like Hunza G that don't ever put their products on sale because they believe their garments retain the same value, whatever the time in the retail cycle. Would it help if more stores adopt this or is this kind of a minor issue?
0: I think Black Friday sales are a complex one because I think they can be a good opportunity for some folks to buy something that they have been needing and wanting for a really not long time that they haven't otherwise been able to afford. In terms of, ha- however, a brand like Pretty Little Thing have used Black Friday as a way to literally give clothes away for free like they did in 2021, which is of course... Highly problematic because it feeds into this idea that our clothes are disposable. So I think it is a complicated issue. I think, you know, it would be great to see restrictions um, on brands. I don't believe any brand should ever be giving away an item of clothing for free. And I think um, it's really interesting to watch what ethical and sustainable brands do around Black Friday. Um, there's an amazing website called Sancho wow Sancho on Instagram I think they are and then on 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 their website is Sancho shop and they use Black Friday as a way to be really transparent about their pricing and a way to kind of educate um us about how we should be buying similarly a London-based brand um called Birdsong are very kind of outspoken about Black Friday and I would really really recommend um learning about what they do around that time. I I think it's a fascinating kind of contrast between the slow and fast means of fashion to see what they do around that weekend.
1: Thank you so much, Venetia. There's so many great resources in there. I will list them all as well in the notes because there's lots of different places to check out. And um, thank you. Thank you for all the work that you're doing and for your passion talking about it.
0: (laughs) Thanks for having
1: me. I hope I haven't been too ranty. No, you've been perfectly ranty. <laughs> just the, just the right amount of ranty. <laughs> this episode of Doing It Right was hosted and exec produced by Pandora Sykes. Production is by Joel Grove. Subscribe now on any major pod platform to get the episodes as soon as they land.